Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. We have been, except for for last week, uh, in a series in which we're we're asking the question, just at a very practical level, what are the what are the practices? What are the exercises? What are the disciplines? that we can um, choose to do that will, over time, train the muscle memory of our soul to cooperate with the Holy Spirit as He is forming us to Christ-likeness. And these classic disciplines have been around for thousands of years. Uh, Darren's talked about uh, meditating on and reflecting on the Word, on prayer. I talked about that, on fasting. And for the few weeks that I'm going to be, or the couple of times that I'm going to be uh, here as part of this series, uh, Darren's asked me to think about with you together some of the disciplines of community. What are the things that, that take this summer of love idea into um, a, a, an ordinary everyday 
practice rather than extraordinary things that we want to do and need to do. We need the events, right? We need the moments. We need the things that we plug into. But to remind us that this is not, these are not anomalous things. These are not extraordinary things. These are, are intended to be really the practices of our lives together. Uh, what does it look like to be community rather than just show up here week after week and, 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 uh, and do, do this hour, hour and a half together? What might it start to look like if we became salt and light together? A transformative presence in our communities, uh, in, in, in the city, being an answer in some way to our prayer that the kingdom would come uh, in Long Beach as it is in, in the heavens. God's will would be done, right? So um, he assigned me to talk about community uh, under the general topic of uh, confession and submission this morning. And so I started working on that, and it just was not getting anywhere. Um, and so I decided to um, pray, um, which is always a good thing to do. Uh, Lord Jesus, why, is, why are you not helping me here? Um, you know, you ever get to that place? Yeah. And the answer basically came is because I don't want you to talk about uh, confession and submission. I want you to talk about chastity. And I said, who is this? <laughs> uh, because that's, not, that's an awkward conversation. Uh, but when I took him seriously and started to push into that, it really kind of made some sense to me because I'm really convinced that in the 21st century, one of the primary destroyers of community is the breakdown of relationships between men and women, largely as a result of our inability not to sexualize one another in our fundamental relationships. Chastity is, a, is an awkward word. It's a, it's a punchline. The problem is, is that the, the, it roots in a, a rich, deep soil of the word chaste, which means to honor others and honor yourself with dignity and respect for the gift that God has given you in your body and your desires, owning them and offering them up as a sacrifice. In other words, even though we use the language of chastity as speaking primarily, we think, to those who are single, i.e. those folks need to be chaste, but those who are married need not be. What you discover is that if you haven't learned chaste behavior when you're single, you're not very good at it when you're married, when you really need it. In fact, I would argue that chastity is more necessary, sexual self-control is more necessary married than it ever was single. And I'll talk to you about why that is a little bit later on. Um, so that's kind of where I'm going to go this morning. And um, pray with me that, that we can get through this. Because this is, um, the, uh, I just need to probably warn you that this is going to veer into TVMA. I'm going to try and stop short of R, but I'll, I'll, I'll just need you to know that we're kind of heading in that, that direction. And, and, and uh, uh, that's a warning, not an apology. Um, I, I, if, if we can't talk about these things in the church, 
where else are we going to be able to talk about them? And so I, that, 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 that's, uh, so pray for us all that we don't crash and burn on the way through this. It's essential for us, I believe, in the kingdom of God that we find and model a better way for men and women to be in collaborative, cooperative relationships in ministry, whether married or single, um, if we are going to partner with God in the coming of the kingdom. If, as we suggested, the image of God is both male and female, not males, not females, but male and female, humankind is the image of God, and that to image God well, we need to be in collaborative, cooperative, interdependent relationships rooted on dependence with God, then we want to start to figure out intentionally how to treat members of the opposite and same sex with dignity, honor, and respect so that we can partner together to be who God has called us to be. We have plenty of models of how it goes sideways in the, in the world that we live in. The church needs to be a place in which we get right the relationships between men and women because I think it will be a fundamental force of witness when we do that. Because I think that we can actually learn from Jesus how to treat women as persons first, how to treat men as persons first, not as sexual objects. Jesus was not a threat to the women who followed him. He never once, as nearly as we can determine from the text of scripture, sexualized women who themselves had defined themselves as sexual beings first. He never did that. He honored them. He dignified them by treating them not as objects, but as persons first. I'm thinking we can learn some things from Jesus about this. Is that right? And if we're his disciples, there is nothing better that we have to do than, than learn this, this way. We are built for community. Community requires a five-dimensional intimacy that we've talked about in other contexts, social, intellectual, emotional, physical, and spiritual. We're built to know and be known in all five of those dimensions with relationships of various kinds making those appropriate or less so. Uh, we need to honor the reality, however, that our Genesis 3 decision has, has even framed our intimacy in terms of shame and fear. And the outcome of shame and fear is not a life of, of, of wild abandon in liberty and freedom, it's a life of uh, distrust, mistrust, and, and increasingly shrinking options. When we are ashamed, we have lost the ability to trust ourselves. When we are fearful, we have lost the ability to trust others. Uh, and so one of the first casualties of our Genesis 3 decision uh, is, the, is, the, is the way that we start to hide from, from, from one another. Uh, and this is clearly seen, obviously, in the relationships uh, between men and women, particularly. Uh, the loss of, 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 of that intimacy is indicated in, this, uh, in the language of Genesis 3. So this spiritual discipline that we talk about here this morning, sexual self-control or chastity, one of the fruit of the Spirit uh, in, in uh, Galatians chapter 5, pushes back against the erosion of this uh, loss of intimacy which enables personhood. It seeks to reestablish health and wholeness in relationships between persons. 
it's not just then or even primarily for single men and women. Uh, it is also for, for fair-minded persons. You'll notice that I'm depending more attention to my notes than I usually do because I want to get this right. So, this is, uh, and I also try, want to try not to step on things that I don't want to step on. So, to be chaste is a discipline of abstinence. It is space creation for the emergence of wholeness. We refrain from sexualizing ourselves and other persons. We train ourselves away over time from dwelling on or engaging in the sexual dimension of our relationships to others as our primary way of knowing and being known by others. We learn to restrict sexual acts, thoughts, and desires to those times, places, and that singular relationship in which they are not ultimately damaging. The goal of chastity is freedom from dominion and domination of sex and sexuality, enabling healthy relationships of holistic intimacy. How does that, does that make sense? Or are you starting to glaze over already? We good? Because again, the goal of chastity is not no. The goal of chastity is meaningful yes to life. Right? That's what, what, what it intends to do is release us from the incessant burdens that our culture places on. We sell toothpaste with sex. With the incessant pressure to conform to standards of behaviors and dress codes and, and on and on and, and, and on and on. And, and all you got to do is sit for a minute and think of the damage that has been created by failure and freedom. And you start to get a sense of why this might be so important. Damaged sexuality has led to um, uh, an increasingly a culture in which attraction, sexual attraction, I'm attracted to or I have uh, an attraction to, and attraction has now become identity. Please notice that attraction is three or four steps removed from identity. You are not first who you are attracted to sexually or who you desire sexually. You are not first your gender, male and female. You are first the image of God. If, that, if, you, if you get that wrong, if that first button doesn't go in that first hole, you're in trouble, right? If, 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 if an image of God doesn't frame gender, doesn't frame attraction, sooner or later, we're going to end up uh, circling the drain of our own lives, right? Uh, it leads to a gender confusion and dysphoria, which is on the increase in our culture and particularly among our younger generation. Uh, it increases the tenderized, uh, or excuse me, tinderized hookup culture that has become part uh, char characteristic of the dating scene. Uh, and if you're unfamiliar with Tinder, that's a very good thing. It, it tends to make easy the acceptance and rejection of persons based on sexuality. Uh, pornography is commonplace at an earlier age. The exposure to pornography for young men is now between the ages of uh, seven and nine. First exposure. Uh, first exposure for young women is now between about nine and ten. Uh, this is massively damaging uh, in, in profoundly uh, unspeakable ways. Sex is regularly part of even intentional dating and courtship relationships. 
And the problem with that is that it leads to a fundamental breakdown of sexual satisfaction in marriage. The reason? Because pre-married sexuality and post-married sexuality are radically different in their orientation. So you can have great sex before you're married, or you can have great sex full while you're married, but you can't have both. If you choose this, then you're going to be, it's going to be an uphill climb for sexual satisfaction through marriage. Can you wonder then why sexuality continues to be one of the top two reasons people cite for divorce? Married sex is really, really hard, especially when it is preconditioned to damage by pre-married sexuality. This is not about shame, by the way, friends. Is everybody okay with that? We have to have, I think we have to have these honest conversations. Uh, and I'm going to propose some solutions, but in order to get why this is important, this is what I'm trying to, trying to suggest here. Con conflict over sex then continues to be the hollow point bullet in marriages. And the, and the belief is, you know, sex is a problem for people who are single because they can't do it. The truth of the matter is, is, is evidenced by the breakdown of healthy relationships and marriages, being married doesn't fix sexual dysfunction. It just cloaks it over. It covers it. Uh, and there is, a, 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 rather than the liberty and the joyous celebration that sexuality is supposed to have in marriages, kind of the icing on the cake of the other five enemies he's built. It becomes, if it's the center of the target, it damages pretty much everything around it. So what am I saying? As a result, this is maybe going to sound a little radical, but as the fact of our creation is that celibacy is the norm. Celibacy is the norm. More persons, if you will, are called to celibacy, I'll use the word call here, by virtue of their relationships, than not. In order for the, the sexual expression to be part of a relationship, God says, basically, in order to do this without, without it causing catastrophic damage, that the relationship in which sexuality is introduced has to be built on the solid foundation of what I've called those five intimacies. It has to be protected by covenant. Otherwise, it creates massive harm. Sex without this damages relationships and persons and fragments the soul because sexuality is about giving a part of yourself to that person with whom you share that experience. That's what it's for. That's what it builds us towards oneness for. That's what it's about. And without the protection of covenant, uh, and without the commitment of the other five intimacies, sexuality not only doesn't contribute to oneness, it damages it. It, it tears it away. It's like... Um, I'm, 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 I'm an amateur woodworker, very amateur woodworker. Um, uh, in fact, my actual hobby is buying tools and subscribing to woodworking magazines, but that's a whole other thing. The primary difference between an amateur woodworker and a professional woodworker, uh, a, a real craftsman, uh, somebody like Pete, for example, uh, is 
that an amateur woodworker, if you're, he's, he's machining a, a, a joint, like a dovetail or a, a box joint, you know, whatever it is, uh, will we'll get it close, will machine it close, and then will fill the gaps with glue, and then clamp the life out of it. It, does that make sense? And, 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 and then when the clamps are removed, it appears that it's okay, except that sooner or later, the nature of the wood starts to split the joint. Right? A professional woodworker machines the joint until it is tight without glue puts a little bit of glue in there, clamps it just to hold it, and that joint will last 100 years without problem. Is anybody having difficulty making connection to the point that I'm trying to make? Sex is the glue. If the joint isn't machined without it, it won't survive with it. So when we are invited into this, this is why I'm suggesting that it's probably uh, more necessary once married than it was before marriage and that this is where we're intended to learn it. Remember, the goal here is Christ-likeness. Jesus was good at this, and so we need to learn. And by the way, just in case we misunderstand this, Jesus lived in a highly sexualized culture. Paul ministered in a massively sexualized culture, way more uh, divergent in th than, than even our culture, depending on which city you happen to have landed in. So it's not that these guys are naive to the billboards on the 605 freeway. They get it and still speak to us about the necessity of, uh, of this. There are lots of passages, uh, and this is the one that I've chosen to look at this morning, uh, not because it's uh, the only one, but because I think it's the most significant. So, uh, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, if you can put that up there, Matthew chapter 5 says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye then causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Amen, amen. And we're thinking, Jesus, really? Really? Jesus, don't you understand? That's why he says it, because he does. Okay? So, and you know, the, we've talked about Sermon on the Mount. We've talked about that before. Go back and pick up the podcast on this. So I'm just going to snapshot this really quickly. Let's go back to the first one, if you don't mind, where he says, you have heard it said. So you hear the echo from the Ten Commandments, and he's now giving us the new way of the kingdom because Jesus knows that we will figure out a way how to do an end run around the commandments. In, in this particular time, the end way was free and easy divorce. I don't have to commit adultery. I just put my wife out with the trash and get a new one. Jesus is saying, guys, you, 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 yes, you have adhered to the letter of the law, but you have missed the whole point the point is not to restrict behavior, but to invite us into the freedom of a lifetime commitment to someone. 
So when you don't commit adultery by practicing serial monogamy, one after the other after the other, one at a time, you've missed the whole point of God's gift in human sexuality. So let me frame it for you in a way that might be helpful. If you have looked on a person, and I'm going to change the language here because I think Jesus would do this in our culture. If you have looked on a person and having looked on that person, have deliberately cultivated lust for that person, objectified them, reduced them to a collection of body parts, then you have already committed adultery in your heart. You've already missed the whole point. Because Jesus knows both men and women sexualize the opposite sex and sometimes the same sex in different ways than one another. Men generally, visually, will reduce women to collections of body parts. Women, generally relational, will reduce men to the roles that they play. So, for example, female pornography focuses more on role-playing and fantasy, whereas male pornography focuses on images. Is this making sense? And Jesus says, in either case, what have you done? You are no longer looking at person. They could be headless. You have reduced them to an object. And in the doing, do you see how this fragments community? When our first sense of a person is, she's hot. He's hot. Whatever that means. <laughs> right? we have instantly reduced them in personhood. And Jesus says, guys, this isn't going to build the kind of community that you pray would come in the kingdom. So let's be clear. This is a high-stakes game we're playing. And then he uses one of the most, in my view, at least, misexegeted texts in the New Testament. He says, second slide, if you don't mind, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Or secondarily, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, Jesus here is telling a joke. He is not intending you to maim yourself as a way of dealing with the condition of your heart. How many of you have noticed that even if you don't look, if your heart is not changed, your eye doesn't help. You can still roll into heaven a lusting lump if you don't deal with the condition of the heart. That's, it's a hyperbole. Because everybody in the audience knows that the problem is not the eyes. The problem is not the hands and the action that they perform. The problem is the human heart that needs to be trained into uh, non-sexualizing, non-objectifying other persons. Does that make sense? So Jesus invites us to consider a different way of thinking about desire, thinking about attraction. And so I'm going to suggest to you that um, lust ought have no place increasingly no place in our relationships. Not even in our marriage. Lust essentially reduces persons to objects for my 
satisfaction. So whether it's a wife or a husband, a boyfriend or girlfriend, a stranger at three o'clock in the morning on the screen, it is a reduction of person created as the image of God for my satisfaction. Now, even in saying that, some of you perhaps are saying, are you kidding me? Lust has been part of my journey since I was five, six, seven, eight. I get it. I really do. I get it personally. I know how challenging this is. I know how hard the battle is. But can I say to you, it's still a battle that is winnable by the grace of God. Don't quit because it's hard. And by the way, let me also say that this isn't unique to the 21st century. One of my favorite quotes from the Desert Fathers, a group of, 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 of essentially um, hermits who went out into the deserts of Syria and Egypt uh, and were regularly sought for spiritual guidance and counsel. One of, one of the pilgrims came to the, one of the leading Desert Fathers, whose name I have now forgotten. Don, maybe you can help me with this afterwards. But anyway... Um, and says, when, when in a man's life does lust cease to be a problem? And the answer was, after he has been dead for 10 minutes. <laughs> so I'm thinking that we probably ought to take advantage of this. If this is going to be the way we are for now, let's not waste it. Let's take advantage of it to form us to Christ's likeness. Let's take advantage of the energy and effort it, that this battle will require to move us in the condition of our heart towards Christ-likeness, because Jesus, like I said, got this right. So again, spiritual disciplines are those practices in which we regularly engage to cooperate with the Spirit as he does the work of transformation. You will not, and this is the point that I think Jesus was getting at, you will not ultimately deal with lust by, by, by cognitive behavioral therapy. You are not ultimately, by snappy rubber bands, by counting to 10, whatever it is, it probably isn't going to be ultimately very helpful. That will be a cast on a brokenness. Not a bad thing. Not sinning is always better than sinning. Right? Throwing away your computer doesn't help, but it might stop the flow for a period of time. Amen, amen. So, 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 but ultimately what we're after here is a change in heart that we can be fully present in relationships without reducing persons. How do we get there? First, I'm going to suggest to you that we get there by starting to change our attitude and disposition toward all persons. All persons. Not about sexuality. Let's start with thinking about all persons created as and to be the image of God. This is, you get regular tests every day about persons who will argue by their behavior and treatment of you that they in fact are not created as the image of God. They in fact are the Satan incarnate. They are right in front of you resisting your personhood. And whether it's a barista or whether it's a clerk or whether it's the guy in the 405 freeway who insists at the last minute of veering into the lane, you've had 14, 14 minutes, the space behind me is empty. How many know what I'm talking about? All right. The dandelions in the lawn of your life 
they are created to be the image of God too. Start somewhere with a conceptualization and an attitude. Please notice we're trying to change our mind, partnering with the Spirit as he transforms us. Second, make sure that you include yourself as part of that renewed vision. You too are created in and to be the image of God. You are an object of his love. You are one upon whom he has set his affection. When you stand in front of that five-dimensional mirror, social, intellectual, emotional, physical, and spiritual, you don't get to say no to any part of yourself. Receive the gift of your whole being with thanksgiving and without asterisk. You know what I mean by asterisk? Without qualification. We don't get to do that. We, can, we have to start with the gift. Then, as part of that, sink deeply into the love of God for you. Let him love you for no good reason. Remind yourself on a... Why? Uh, 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 Pope Gregory, the guy who conceptualized the seven deadly sins that we've talked about before, reminded us that all of our sin, all of our self-destruction is really, at the end, a failure of love. So lust takes love that is intended for persons and directs it towards desires. So the way back home is to reframe love as being about personhood, about relationship, and that starts to flood out the toxicity of love that has been misdirected towards desires. This is way easier in the long run. It takes, takes longer to begin, but in the long run, it's the only thing will affect permanent change. If you've got something in your eye, Here's two primary ways. We've talked about this before to get it out. You can get in there with the tweezers and try and get that speck out of your eye. I'm guessing you might accomplish it, but you're going to probably do damage. Or you can just start flooding it with water. That's what I'm talking about. You can try to reframe, move away, put practices into place, all, all, all perhaps well and good. And, and I'm going to suggest that there are some of those that we should be doing. But if you really want to affect permanent change, start flooding it with the refreshing, soul-shaping water of his love. Let living water bubble up within you and reframe and refocus the ways of self-damage. Does that make sense? Then, uh, so as we, as we do this, please then start to remember that attraction is normal. Don't shame yourself because you're attracted to someone. Don't shame yourself because there is even a desire attached to that attraction. But here's the memo. You don't have to do anything about that attraction. You don't have to say anything about it. You don't have to act on it. You don't have to write them a fancy poem. You can let it be and let it go. This is critical, and, and it's, it makes so much sense except in the soap opera world that we live in, except in the reality TV shows that we live in. What would they do as we go to commercial break? 
except to remind us what one of the K's are saying or feeling or thinking about someone else. Well, if I have this desire, it must be authentically who I am. I have to be true to myself. No, you don't. You do not, especially when the self you're being true to is false self. The more you reinforce the false self, guess what? The more it grows. If you got two dogs in the fight, the dog you feed is going to win. Starve that sucker. How are we doing? We good? So, so it's, it's okay. So what do, I had this conversation with somebody two weeks ago. What do I do? I'm attracted to someone who is not my spouse. I think he, she might be my soulmate. I've been married to somebody else for seven years. What do I do? My answer? Don't tell her. Don't act on it. Court your wife. You become soulmates with the person you're married to. You don't marry your soulmate. That takes a lot of work. <laughs> a lot of work. I, 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 I need a, a, a sound effects push button thing. Um, whatever you do, don't tell them. That's a violation of a boundary that needs to be established. If you need to talk about it, find somebody trusted you can talk about it with. Somebody who can help you push back against self-destructive. By the way, can I just also say that attraction and or slash desire is not permission. It, it doesn't mean you have to do anything with it. It's not a mandate. Then, continuing to deliberately cultivate a whole person view of other persons. Spend a lot of time on face and eyes. That is primarily, Jesus tells us, the Psalms tell us, where the person emerges. So if you want to stop objectifying, if you want to stop objectifying either body parts or the roles that they play, repersonalize them by concentrating on the part of their body that reflects the soul inside, face and eyes. It's a deliberate, intentional look at a person, not body, not role. Deliberately cultivate then attitudes of honor and respect towards others, all others. And get into the habit of treating people the way you would like everybody to treat you. Oh, that sounds like somebody really wise. Get into the habit of treating people with honor, whether they treat you that way or not. And we have plenty of opportunities, don't we, to do that. So let's act in that partnership with the Holy Spirit, especially because you've got to remember, they are the children of the same father you are the child of. They have value, worth, and significance to him. Guard against them that tendency to reduce persons by whatever means. Uh, can we start also, especially if you have struggled with this, when I've been walking with guys, in, men and women now increasingly, with pornography, 
uh, uh, either addiction or practice and moving away from that, one of the things that has really been helpful is to invite Jesus into your sexuality. Give thanks for it. It's a gift. Receive it with thanksgiving. Offer it up. Invite Jesus to teach you how to be a man, how to be a woman with sexual feelings and desires that may, if not discipled by Jesus, be expressed inappropriately, expressed damagingly. Jesus gets you. So ask him to teach you, you, as a sexual being in healthful relationships. If, if, you, are, if you are married, work as hard as you can, not at the end goal of sexual satisfaction, but at the foundational level of five-dimensional intimacy. Take the trash out. And I mean that both relationally and literally. <laughs> right? It is, it is a, a regular courting of your husband and wife. Don't use sex as a weapon. Don't use it as a manipulation. Don't use it as a power play. Inevitably, you will be damaged by any and all of the misuses of sex. You will. So take some time and learn your spouse and know them as, as social, intellectual, emotional, spiritual, and physical beings without sex. They're only about three to five percent, or three to five of the stages of, sec, of, of physical intimacy that are sexual. And, 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 and if, if we keep going there first without the, the foundational elements, this, they, they tend not to be very helpful, right? So it's, it's this in investment with intention. Ask Jesus to teach you. Receive it as a gift. Invite him into the temptation. Not just the failure. Oh God, I did it again. Channeling inner Brittany. <laughs> Sorry. If you, if you wait till the boat has crashed on the shore, it's too late to repair the damage in the hull. Invite Jesus in to pilot the thing away from the rocks. Does that make sense? It, 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 he's not embarrassed by your sexuality. He invented it. He, he knows how it works. He was as fully man as any man ever walked the planet. Remember that significant numbers of his followers, his disciples, had former lives in prostitution. That he never sexualized them says a lot about him. So learn this from him. Let him teach you. Learn from him healthy, contextual attitudes and practices, particularly with regards to entertainments. If, 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 if you're an alcoholic, probably hanging out at a bar is not the smartest place for you. If you struggle with sex addiction or sexual attraction that occasionally runs rampant, maybe there are some entertainments you ought not be going to. Maybe there's some movies you shouldn't be downloading from Netflix or, or Prime or HBO. It might be good just to cancel a cable for a while. Doesn't fix anything. That's casting brokenness, but not sinning is way better than sinning by whatever means you have to get there. You, 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 making sense? 
And again, how seriously do you want to repersonalize others? Uh, maybe, especially uh, at varying stages of your life, but because I walk mostly with 18 to 22-year-olds, you might want to think about the connection between sexuality and alcohol. If you can't manage alcohol or if it makes possible things that you wouldn't normally do if you were in your right mind, perhaps until you're able to manage that better, it would be better to stick with iced teas. Does that make sense? Uh, and I mean, you, you've read the court case recently from Northern California. Uh, alcohol plays a predominant role in the reduction of our boundaries and barriers that would normally protect us from inhuman behavior towards other persons. Establish and maintain appropriate boundaries in relationships, physical, emotional, spiritual, conversational. Really, really, really guard against double entendre flirtation that hints and promises with innuendo, the raised eyebrow, the, that's what she said. Because that turns things into punchlines that ought to be taken seriously. Cultivate the deep beauty of the practice of modesty in dress and behavior. This isn't just for women. It's for men and women. Modesty is not a condition purely of the clothing you wear or don't wear. It's an attitude of the heart that expresses itself in those kinds of practices. And finally, don't be conformed. Whether, whether by, by, by FOMO or shame, FOMO, everybody, I've just realized. Fear of missing out. The struggle is real, people. <laughs> there are folks who will cross boundaries that they swore they would never cross because they're terrified that by not crossing them, they will miss out something essential to their personhood. And on the other side, they discover it's too late to go backwards. And that the person they thought they were discovering isn't really them in the first place. Don't let shame or fear drive you into the world's understanding of sexuality. Why does this matter? Because we are kingdom people. If we don't get this right, who's going to? We are compasses in a world of chaos and confusion. And it's going to get more chaotic and more confusing. And I'm not talking about the political scene. Our world continues to go sideways because it's lacking moral compass. Guess who's supposed to be the compass? We are. We're the salt. We're the light. One of the things about a compass is that it seems to always know where it is relative to true north. That's us. I also want to say, just in conclusion, the worship team is going to come back up and we're going to create some space for response here. But to those of you who have, um, would define yourself, whether you think of this way or not, but is broken or is fearful, I want to say because of this declaration that we made earlier, because of the cross, there is redemption in Jesus. 
no matter how broken, no matter how much life has been shaped by pornography, no matter how many partners you've had, no matter how many places you've gone that you swore you would never go by whatever means you went, Jesus knows the way home from there. And, and whether, whether you, you come and let us pray for you here and now, whether you are partway on that journey and you want to just stay where you are, you, uh, I just want you to know that all and anything that I've been saying here you ought not take, if I can possibly beg you, don't take this as, as the final word about you, that you are going to be marked and marred forever. You will never find, no, 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 no. We don't get to say that. We serve someone who has the capacity to raise stuff from the dead. He is able to recreate us into new creations, new creatures. Don't give up on yourself before he gives up on you, which means... Never. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org. Well